The App Guy podcast goes out every Sunday and Thursdays. Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. And now, Paul, the App Guy. Yes, welcome to another edition of uh, the App Guy Podcast. I am Paul Kemp. I'm uh, the founder of OneMob and... With this show, I get on some really interesting guests who can help inspire us and get us through the app projects that we may be working on. And I've had a lot of interesting guests over the last week or so, and I've got a really interesting guest lined up for us tonight. Uh, his name is Tim Duckett. He is the product lead for Numbers at Central Way. And he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Um, but Tim has built some really awesome apps in his career. Uh, two of the most prominent ones that we can uh, talk about are uh, East Coast Timeline, which is an interesting app on uh, the iTunes store, and the Food Hospital app, which was something that was sponsored by Channel 4. Tim's going to talk to us about that. So Tim, look, I've taken a minute to introduce you, but you could do a much better job than me. Tell us about yourself, what you're doing at the moment, and uh, how you got involved in IT. Sure, thanks, Paul. Um, that's an awesome introduction. I'm suitably embarrassed by that. Um, yeah, I'm primarily um, a software engineer, but I've also been a, a product manager, tech author, university lecturer. Um, I've had various different hats over the years. Um, worked with all kinds of, of platforms and frameworks, but over the last um, sort of four or five years or so, I've concentrated mainly on Ruby on Rails and Objective-C and iOS. Um, I fell into software development. My background is electronic engineering. I, I didn't do the, the computer science route. And I kind of fell into the software development because it was something that, something that fascinated me, the idea that you could make this, uh, this lump of glass, plastic, silicon, um, and metal do your bidding and actually make things happen with it is, is just, a, just an awesome thing to be able to do. Um, so from that point of view, it's been a f fantastically interesting career over the years. And the one thing I can say is that I've never actually been bored. Right. And you know, I forgot to mention, you've, uh, in amongst all that, you have actually written um, some books and, and authored uh, Pro iOS Table Views for iPhone, iPad and iPod Touch. And I know that you're working on a new version of that as, as well. Um, did, did becoming an author give you the respect uh, you needed in the industry to show that you can do this stuff? Or was it really uh, the companies that you were working for? That's an interesting question. Um, I, the, the, the way I've always looked at it, there's, there's always someone out there who knows more than you do. Um, all of a sudden, when you see your name on the front cover of a book, my, my, my initial reaction was, you know, oh, my God, everybody's going to know that all the errors in there were my fault, uh, which is, is, is always a, a little daunting. Uh, respect in the industry, I'm, that's an interesting concept. Um, I'm not sure that I would ever sort of try to see myself along the, alongside the, the, the real big names of the industry um, that are out there. I, it, that's, it's the first time anybody's floated that concept to me, so I'm, I'm slightly, slightly um, taken aback by it. <laughs> you know, it, it's just that I guess we're all um, trying to get a name uh, for ourselves, you know, with the apps that we work on and 
and I just like to ask authors um, who have gone to enormous amounts of work to get those books published, you know, was it worth it? And would you recommend that as a route to gain respectability amongst your peers? Oh, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Uh, you would never start writing books for the money. Uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely no way that it would, would could possibly be described as a good investment of time from that front. But from the point of view of being able to, to demonstrate that you know something about the technologies you're working with, there's something there. There's something there. It, it feels like one of those things that's actually probably worth more to other people than it is to yourself. I have had conversations with people in the past who've said, oh, you know, this is, this, is, this is all very interesting. This is amazing. You must know everything there is to know about these technologies because you've written a book about it. That sadly is not the case. What writing books actually demonstrates to you is just how little you don't know and just how huge the, 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 the gap between your knowledge and what you could know about a technology actually is. So let's take the story back to your early part of your career because people listening to this will be perhaps thinking about the route they want to take in life. Uh, they may be playing around with app development on a, as a side project and, and just wondering whether it's something they're passionate enough to follow uh, you know, for the rest of their career. So how did you know you had a passion for IT, software development, and what were the signs that you have to look for to know that that's really something you love? <laughs> well, I was one of those irritating childs that used to take clocks to bits to see how they work. So I, I guess that was probably evident from a, a fairly early age. I, I was fortunate enough, I was, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the first wave of home computing. And I think that's actually been a positive thing as far as I'm concerned, because in those days it was, it was very, without wanting to, to sound like, um, you know, sort of ancient history, it was very different in those days because you were very much closer to the bare metal. So getting these machines to do anything felt like a huge achievement just because they were, they, they were so limited. That kind of stayed with me to a certain extent, I suppose. The, as I say, it's going back to the idea that you can get this, this inanimate object to do what you want. Um, there is actually no greater kick in my career than occasionally seeing somebody using an app that you've either worked on or, or had a part in or contributed a small small element to. Um, you, you can actually see people using what you built in real life. Um, and I suppose it must be, I can't, I can't really think of any, any other analogies, but here is something that I was involved in that somebody is using, getting some satisfaction from. There's, there's, I, I'm not sure you can have a, a, a better, a, a, a sort of better return on a career investment than that, really. It's just an interesting question because, you know, from my own perspective, I actually loved computing when I was a child and, and I am um, pretty ancient as well. I remember my first computer was a yeah. Spectrum, Sinclair Spectrum um, ZX1, I think. It was a 1K. Right, which will mean nothing to anybody. You know, sort of half the industry won't, won't, won't have <laughs> You know, it wouldn't even st store one of my photos on uh, the, currently on the iPhone, and that's the entire memory. And it had these rubber keys and uh, used the basic language. And, you know, we wrote some games and I fell into that. And I sort of fell out of it and followed a different path, probably followed the money path, you know, going into the city of London and, and working there. And then realized you know, later on in my career, you know, I've missed something. I... I wanted to get back into technology because I just love technology so much. And I made that mistake in my life and, and 
realized it later on in life. And, you know, it's interesting to people now who are perhaps thinking about their career, what to follow that and what they're passionate about. And so, anyway, that's why I posed those questions. So tell us then, what were the first early projects then you, you started working on? Well, as I say, I, I fell into this. It, it was, I never had a grand career plan. Uh, I, I must admit, I'm always slightly suspicious of people who do because, Technology in the industry moves so quickly; it's 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 very difficult to to plan with any degree of certainty for for any length of time. I came up the operations side. Um, I've worked on system retail systems where availability is all. I then went up the management route, which was interesting, but really not not I think um, something that I, I really found a great deal of a great deal of passion for. What I was conscious of is that there comes a point in your career when you've got to decide whether you're going to be someone who who does or someone who stands and watches. Um, And if you go the management route, then you you very quickly become someone who stands at the side and watches other people do things. And I find that quite frustrating. I like the idea of being able to roll my sleeves up and actually do things. So to an extent, you, you get to a point where you need to make that decision and go one way or the other. Fortunately for me, it's worked out. Um, it's it's a very democratic industry in that it's about what you what you actually know, um, what what you can actually do, rather than um, any any other factors. So the the kind of projects I ended up working on were very much really just. I, I always found myself going into projects, wondering how I was ever going to complete them. Um, wondering if this time was the the project that I was actually going to get found out and people would realise that I really didn't know what I was talking about. I was just one page ahead in the book, uh, quicker than they were. And that seems to have worked quite well over the years. I think if you go into a project knowing exactly how you're going to do it, um, how you're going to to deliver it, you've probably uh, got the wrong idea about what it is you you were supposed to be doing. If you go into a project with a little bit of uncertainty um, or even just you know, sheer terror that you haven't a clue how this is going to work out, you're really not even sure where to start, that's probably a good sign. It's probably going to, going to work out in the end. Yeah, because it's uh, interesting in that we recently interviewed uh, a guy called Greg Vodika who talks about millennials and what they're seeking out of life. And it's very different to perhaps you know, my generation, which is uh, Generation X. Uh, the millenn- millennials are uh, seeking you know, a purpose in life. Um, they're uh, actually quite uh, aggressively wanting th- things about um, their role uh, that, that's different to perhaps you know, my generation. And, and so there's the, the question, and you, you've got great experience that we can try and tap into what, your knowledge here and, uh, and your advice on whether to go down the corporate route, working for a good, solid corporate brand, going up the management ladder, or whether then going down a consulting route and becoming a consultant stroke teacher, stroke lecturer, and then the startup working for yourself, or having those three distinctions, what guidance could you give people listening to this in terms of where to go with their uh, app development careers? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think it comes down to what you're comfortable with. Some people are only ever going to be comfortable with a kind of situation where they know exactly where the, ne- the next paycheck's coming from and somebody else worries about the, the big questions. And that's very often the case in, in corporate environments. You know, you, you have a job to do, you get on with it, and somebody else is looking after the, the big picture strategic stuff. I think 
the other the other extreme is the is is the contract self-employed um, gun for hire kind of route, which which I seem to have, have fallen into in the past. The trade off there, it, you're, you're trading off security against, I suppose, to a certain extent, financial reward. The thing to remember, though, if if you're trying to make that kind of decision, is is that there really is no such thing as a permanent job. Um, when you have a, a sort of quote permanent role, then basically all you know is that next month's paycheck is going to roll in, and if you're lucky, you might know that the next two or three paychecks are going to roll in. But beyond that, you really you, you're really no more secure than anybody else out there. The advantage of being your own boss, the advantage of going down the cons- the, the, the contract consultant um, sort of uh, higher route is that you actually have much more control over your own destiny. If you want to go and work in a particular area, then you've got the ability to to kind of pick up your tools and, and go over there and start playing with it. Whereas in a corporate environment, you're very much more beholden to the, the, the overall direction. Which one is for you? That's ultimately a personal decision. It's, it comes down to what you're comfortable with. But I think the great advantage that we have in this industry is that our skills are in such demand that if, if one side doesn't work out, you've always got the option of going back and trying something else again. And it's, it's very easy to switch between those two worlds. It's a great place to be. I don't know how long that's going to last, whether it's something that will you know, ultimately, um, you know, all good things must come to an end, I guess. Whether that will last in the long term, I don't know. But while it's while we're in this situation, then really you've got the option of of, of experimenting and trying and figuring out what's best for you. And you mentioned uh, skills and demand. There, you've got such a a wide array of uh, skills with uh, across all the the different languages. Which which ones would you say are most in demand right now? Well, there's no doubt that Objective C iOS uh, is tremendously in demand i mean if if the if the number of approaches i get on a weekly basis or anything to go by then there is there's more work out there than there is there are people to actually deliver it the thing to bear in mind i think is that all technologies have a a natural life cycle all technologies will come to an end and there comes a point when the demand for your particular set of skills that you've got right now will drop off now if you're able to to ride that and your skills then sort of go into this the abeyance and then gradually become popular again, you're in quite a good place. I mean, there are still people out there making a very good living out of COBOL. Um, whether that's something I would necessarily advise somebody to do, I'm not sure about that. It, it's you, You've got to be quite... Um, I, th- I think you have to have to have pretty niche skills in order to do that. The, the question to ask yourself really is what's, what's the next thing coming along and at what point are my skills going to become outdated? At what point do I need to start thinking about the next, uh, where, where the next big thing is coming from? If you've got that in the back of your mind, you're probably not going to go too wrong. If you're concentrating purely on the skills you've got right now and you're not learning new things, Maybe that's maybe that's a, a, a the alarm bell should start ringing that perhaps you need to to look up a bit and, and see where see where the industry might be going in the future. You know, listening to this, it, it's sort of making me think that, like for example, um, you said that languages may uh, have a natural life cycle, and and when we look at Objective C, when we're typing in things like NS string, you know, and NS being next step, <laughs> and that's going back to. <laughs> You know the late nineties. Uh, it's 
it does feel like it's quite quirky and it has a you know a lot of the language is is based on history and it's a long time ago and uh, but whether Objective C will go out of fashion in the next few years is, is difficult to say. Um, and also, then I was thinking um, of languages you mentioned, COBOL. I mean, the, um, the C language as well is, I believe, being used in the Pebble Watch, which is is a very mm-hmm. uh, new development and something worth watching because it's the wearables. But it's ironic that they're using a very old language. So, <laughs> so yeah, so some things never really change, do they? If you had to recommend uh, maybe two or three core languages, what what would you recommend? Oh, I, I think C is a very interesting one because so many languages have come from that C base. I mean, you, you, you've got Objective-C, of course. You've got C-sharp. Um, I mean, there's an example of a common core serving two very different worlds. You've got C-sharp in the, in the, sort of the corporate Microsoft world, then you've got Objective-C in the, in the iOS uh, and Apple world. All of those come down to the common the common C base. Um, maybe the, maybe looking at languages is is perhaps not the best way of looking at this. If you look at it from the point of view of concepts, underlying concepts, um, all whichever language you care to, to to throw a stick at these days is object orientated. So if you've got a common understanding of object orientation, you're not going to go far wrong. If you've got a common understanding of how uh, design patterns work, again, you can switch those skills very quickly to different languages. So I would almost, I would actually turn the question round, and rather than concentrating on languages, I would, I would ask yourself what, what are the fundamental design principles that I need to know about, and how do they uh, relate to the, the the kind of tools that I'm, I want to work with? Because underneath it, whether you're working with Objective C or C Sharp or C plus plus or whatever whatever these whatever the language languages are, underlying them are some common fundamentals. If you understand those fundamentals, you've got yourself into a position where you can switch between languages quite quickly because you understand the uh, you understand the fundamentals. That's great advice for people listening and. One of the other things I think we can learn from you as well is I believe that you've made a recent um, switch. Uh, you, you've gone to live abroad from the UK. Well, pe- people listening may get inspired by that, you know, the thought of, of living in a foreign country. Uh, we do have listeners all around the world and, and not just in the UK. But what was it like, um, you know, actually going to move and, and live abroad? Uh, and, and was that something you would suggest to broaden people's perspective on life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's equal parts exciting and terrifying um, because you realise just how much you don't know about somewhere else. But I, I suppose I and lots of people like me have two really, uh, re- really great advantages going for us. Firstly, I've got skills which are in demand. That, that's the first thing. So I can go and do what I do in lots of places. I'm doing it in Zurich. You're doing it in Dubai. You know, that you, you've other people are doing it in San Francisco, in the US, San Francisco. Uh, really, you've got this, 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 it's an industry which is international. Um, and then the other real advantage that, that you and I have got is that our native language is English. And by the sort of strange quirk of fate, we've ended up speaking the, what is effectively the, the, the international language of business. So it means that if you're prepared, if, if you've got those two advantages, you're working in technology and you have a reasonable command of the English language, all of a sudden, all of these possibilities open up for you. You could work in, in Zurich, Dubai, Berlin, uh, the, 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 the US, 
Australia and Far East, you know, effectively you've got the the, the world is literally um, it, it's literally a place you, you can go wherever you want to go. So I think you know if if you, if you are in this situation, if you have some technical skills and you've got some you, you've got some reasonable language ability, then to be honest, it, it's why wouldn't you look at these opportunities? It's um, the why, why would you not uh, look at the possibilities of, of, of going and seeing you know, different places with different people? If you go back to some of my earlier episodes, I interviewed a, a guy called Kirby Turner. and He's an author and a developer, and he spent uh, a lot of his day um, snowboarding and encoding like, in, in, <laughs> in amongst uh, his snowboarding. He's got a kid, um, which is, you know, he's, he's married, but he's, he still found time to follow his passion his two passions in life is coding and then uh, his boarding. You're living in Zurich. Are you getting chance to go skiing over the winter? I hear there's some good snow. <laughs> no, this is the ironic thing. I've, I've moved to Switzerland, which has some of the best skiing in the world. I've never skied in my life. Um, so I, I feel I actually feel something of a fraud being here now. Because I've, <laughs> I've come to skied, I haven't snowboarded. You know, I have. I, I, I don't participate in winter sports at all. Uh, clearly something I'm going to have to, uh, if I'm going to fit in with natives, it's clearly something I'm going to have to investigate. <laughs> there's a lovely, if you, there's about a four hour journey actually, you can go across to St. Anton in Austria and that's some great skiing around there. Uh, yeah, you've definitely got to get a pair of skis or even go for a, a snowboard. Um, I used to board for about 10 years and I would love to live in Zurich. It's just, yeah, something you've got to try, Tim, definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I really should. Uh, I really should get up and give it a go. It's, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you're not too old to be uh, to be to be falling over all the time. It, it's only in action. Actually, I think you can probably draw analogies to to, to the, the coding world. Actually, so one of the things I have seen is um, you see small children, um, little kids who just take to, to to skis or snowboards like it's second nature. I think maybe the reason for that is that they're, they're, the two things, they're not afraid to give them a try. Um, they're not afraid to sort of embarrass themselves. And they're not afraid to fall over a few times on, on the way. I think you can actually draw an analogy to that in coding. If you, you, the, don't be embarrassed about what you don't know because there's always somebody who knows more than you. There's always somebody who knows less than you. Um, and also don't be afraid to try things out. It, it's only by trying things out and messing them up that you ever learn. Um, a piece of advice I was given by um, a great guy called Ralph Balkan, who um, he, he taught me quite a lot about what I know about iOS development. He's, he's a great guy uh, for insights into user experience. Um, very interesting guy about uh, around the, the whole design areas. And one of the things he said was, well, if you know, if you want to try something out, if you want to see if something will work, say you've got a little knotty problem that you're not quite sure the best way to tackle it, and you, you just want to figure out um, how, you're, how you're going to solve it, it's really simple. You open up your IDE, you create yourself a new project, and you try it. And if it works, that's great. You take the code and you, you, you move it into the project that you're actually working on. If it doesn't work, fine, throw it away. Try something else. Move on to the next thing. And with... The ability to do that with with the idea of whatever your idea is, uh, with source control, you know, if, if something works, you keep it. If something doesn't, you throw it away. If you use that, I think that that actually you, you can take away a lot of the fear about um, 
fear about getting things wrong, fear about if, is this going to work, am I going to look an idiot? Um, there's, there's no such thing as looking at idiots in software, it's just something that you haven't tried before. Um, keep those two things in mind. So I think yeah, you mentioned about kids learning to ski and uh, th this show is supported by uh, lynda.com which um, offer uh, video tutorials on the languages and I'm seeing a lot more now languages uh, or tutorials towards uh, teaching kids teaching kids like you know objective c and it's almost like a, a, a train of thought that is mm -hmm. kids need to they don't need to learn chinese they don't need to learn <laughs> japanese or anything they need to learn coding as their second language and um, that's probably going to be more important going forward than yeah maybe that's true i think it's it's it teaches you a way of if, if you can code it teaches you a way of looking at the world it teaches you a way of solving problems um, it teaches you to break things down into logical steps. I think so much of, without wanting to get sort of off on a political rant, um, you know, so the really big questions, I think a lot of the problems that we face are down to the fact that as human beings, we're not especially good at solving problems. We tend to operate by instinct. You know, we're, we're, we're very knee-jerk. Um, we're designed to, to operate on selective, selective, uh, selective data. Ultimately, a lot of what our problems boil down to the fact that we, we kind of look at problems in two ways. Is, is this thing, can I eat this thing or is this thing going to eat me? It's that sort of very low level um, uh, sort of animalistic wiring. What coding does is teach you to break things down into, into small chunks and look at things in terms of their components. If you can do that from an early age, then surely that can only be a good thing. Looking at the world logically can, can only be a positive thing. Uh, so I think a lot of these, the, the lynda.com is a good example, um, all, all the Code Academy um, in the UK, you've got your Rewind State. Anything that encourages kids to look at the world from the point of view of, you know, here, is a, here are a set of problems and here are a set of tools I can use to solve those problems, that's got to be a good thing. And the great thing that I found, I mean, I, I've been involved with Young Rewind State for, for several years. The great thing that I like, the, the thing that I love about it is that I'm never conscious, really conscious of being an adult. It's a very democratic, uh, it's a very democratic world in, in, in code. Age doesn't actually make all that much difference because these, these, these kids who are, you know, quite literally young enough to be my kids, um, I'm literally old enough to be their parent, um, really doesn't feel like that it, because a lot of them, they're far better coders than I will ever be. And it, it just reduces the whole situation down to um, really just what your, your, your underlying abilities, which I think, I think is a, if you can break down those generational gaps, surely, surely that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, very much so. And I was listening about how we think about problems in the world. And you're very free to go on a political rant on this show. There's no problem at all. In fact, we like that sort of stuff. But, you know, because, I mean, the whole industry we're in is, as app developers is, is to be change the world in a way and, and be disruptive. I think they're using the word disruptive quite a lot. Uh, and I do remember listening mm -hmm. to a TED mm -hmm. talk where he's saying it's the way we frame the problem. You know, like, for example, in the UK, there was the problem of getting to Paris and it was taking too long and they wanted to shorten the, the journey time by, say, 20 minutes. So we spent like several billion, how many billions on the Euros tunnel? And we wanted to speed that up and we spent more and more and 
billions and billions. Of, and all they could have done is quite easily just uh, had um, the train full of um, you know nice-looking uh, ladies walking up and down serving champagne, and we wouldn't have cared like twice about the journey time. And it would have saved us billions as as a country. Uh, And it's just the way we think about problems. And yeah, maybe that we need. Oh, I I think that's a great example. Um, uh, Last year, I was at a conference, um, IOSWK in Aberystwyth in Wales. And there was a great um, talk from uh, someone who'd been involved in building the, the Discworld app. So anybody who's into uh, Terry Pratchett, the sort of... I interviewed someone uh, actually who was involved with that um, last last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Well, they... Right, they they gave a great example of how they tackled an issue with um, loading speed. So they had an app which was full of assets. There was a very, very rich in terms of, of images and sounds and the whole user experience. Um, but the problem with that is that when the app first started up, it took a very long time to decompress these assets. So the the, the, lo- the overall experience seemed, the app seemed very slow. And they were looking for a way to, to fix this. And of course, the obvious, the obvious approach is that you make the decompression faster and you, you, you try and make the app load quicker. But it comes to a point where you can't do that. There's just that you get into a law of diminishing returns and eventually you reach a point where you're going as fast as you possibly can. Um, and there are two things you could do there. One is you could give up. You could say, okay, we've, we've optimized this app as far as we possibly can, and this is as good as it's ever going to be, and we're just going to have to live with this sort of slightly sucky user experience. What they did, interestingly, is take the other approach, and they said, well, you know, how can we tackle this, and how can we make it seem as if the app is actually performing better than it is? So what they did is they had um, a series of messages sort of scroll past as the app uh, was starting up, that had nothing to do with the, 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 the what was going on underneath. Nothing to do with the fact that the, the uh, nothing to do with the fact that the images were being decompressed. And all it was was a series of funny messages scrolling past. So decompressing assets and reticulating splines. And I think one of them was executing mime artists. <laughs> so as you were watching this application start up, you weren't focusing on the amount of time it was taking to, to start before you could actually play the game. You were actually waiting for the next thing to flash past, the next message to pop up and see if it was funnier than the last one. So I think that's a great example of misdirection. And you're absolutely right. It's, yeah, don't focus on the time of the journey, just make the journey more, make the journey nicer um, so you're not focused on the length of time. It, it's an example of how, with a little bit of lateral thinking, you can take a situation and turn it around to your advantage. And as developers, we have the, you know, we have the power to do that. If you, if you lift your eyes from the code for a second and, and look at the, the wider user experience, I think you, we, we as developers have got the power to, 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 to almost fool people into experiencing something which isn't quite there. Now, I can say to the audience that we did not um, collude on this, but uh, uh, we had the lead, lead developer on Discworld. Uh, and in fact, by the time this goes out uh, to iTunes, it will be the episode before this, uh, which is with Graham Lee. So it's great that you've brought that round right. to the episode before uh, without any, uh, <laughs> you know, any kind of agreement on that. But. Well, there you go. Graham will probably tell the story far better than I can. Well, Graham, let's face it, Graham was involved, so he, 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 he has the right to tell this story. Um, you, should, you, should probably, you should probably remove this. In, in, uh, <laughs> remove this. Uh, do you know Graham, Graham Lee? I do, yes. I, I know Graham quite well. It's, um, and 
yeah, as I say, I, I would. I'm glad that this is going out after Graham because I, I would hate to hate to spoil his his anecdote. <laughs> and you know, that, let's move on to networking as well. And you're well known in the in- industry. And how would you? suggest people get connected to the key players in the industry what's the best ways of going about doing that well take advantage of the technology we've got um the the years ago in the early 90s when the internet first came along there was a great cartoon i think it was in the new new yorker magazine um two dogs sat at a pc and the caption was but the great thing about the internet is is on the internet no one knows you're a dog um, and it, it's one of the classics. If you Google it, it you'll, you'll, you'll find it. I think that's very, very true. The great thing about the internet is we, we can we can connect very easily. We can reach out to each other very, very easily. The ways to get your profile known, and it's it's not just about getting your name known. It's about putting something back. I think you've got tools like Stack Overflow. If you've got um, if you see a problem that you know the answer to, somebody's looking for help. You can contribute that way. Um, that's a great way of raising your profile. Also, um, if you've got interesting ideas, interesting content, you can get them out there on blogs, on podcasts. You know, that's a traditional way of doing it. Don't overlook the physical route as well. You know, if you can get to conferences, you do. That's a great way of meeting people. I know in this industry we do tend to be uh, t- tend to be introverts. I still find it very um, uh, quite quite intimidating to walk in, into a room with strange people where I don't know anybody and, and have to converse with them. It's it, I think it's something we all find find quite tricky. But what you'll find is if you if you can get yourself to to user groups, meetups, places where you can get out away from the keyboard and meet people face to face, you'll very quickly find that you build up a network. You'll very quickly find that you. You, you get yourself into a situation where you know someone who can help you or you might be able to help somebody else out. And the networking, having your network is incredibly important. It means that you're not at the mercy of recruiters. You're not at the mercy of recruitment consultants um, without wanting to go off on another rant about the recruitment business. You know, that's um, a topic you could spend <laughs> hours on that one alone. Um, if, if you know people, um, if you know good people, if you are known as being good by other people, you'll find it much easier to get on in the industry. Um, ultimately, if you can do someone a favor, it's the karma principle. If you can do someone a favor um, at some point in time, they might later on be in the position to, to help you out when you need it. So I, I think that that's incredibly important. Just 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 be a nice person and be someone who other people would want to be around. I think is is what it boils down to. Tim, it's interesting that I was listening to that and thinking that actually one of the uh, light bulb moments that I had and the reason for doing this podcast is that people. The app developers in the marketplace that perhaps they do find uh, the networking approaching people intimidating. I just that's why I set up the podcast was because that I just wanted to hear the human stories behind uh, some of the the big developers out there who have written some great apps. You know, so uh, that's why I've gone ahead and done this. And it's interesting to sort of hear you say that networking is important and just getting your name out there and and doing the the conference circuits. What what conferences would you recommend? that we target from the point of view of someone who's based in europe um obviously the us and asia and other uh, australia and other locations have their own conference circuits the two that i'm i always make an effort to get to every year um one is iostep uk it's held in a little town called aberystwyth in west wales it takes 
an inordinately long time to get to because Adorestis is really a very, very long way away from anywhere else. But once you get there, it's a great conference. Um, it attracts people from all over the world. It's it's quite small, so it's very intimate. They have great speakers. Um, I spoke there last year, but you know, don't let that put you off. <laughs> that's definitely worth going to. Um, the other one that's that's great, and I make an effort to get back to, is UIConf. Uh, Conf spelled the K. That's in Berlin. Um, usually around about sort of April, uh, April May time. Berlin is a is, is an amazing place. It's a fantastic city. It's worth going there, even if you're not going to a conference. But UIConf itself is is also great. Uh, make an effort to go to that one. They, I would. Don't be put off by the cost. Look at it as an investment. It does cost money to go to conferences. It does take time. You've got to get there. You've got to travel. But I would look at it as investing in your career, investing in your future, in the same way that you would go out and make sure that you have a decent laptop to work with. It's just the tools of the trade. I would just put uh, conference attending, going to conferences, going to meetups as part of that. It's something that you, you should be doing. Just budget for it. Just do it. Make the effort and you won't regret it. What internet resources would you suggest people look at? What are your favourites? Um, oh dear, that's the... I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to hit back on the cliches, to be honest. The, the tabs that I always have open include Stack Overflow because that's just the... It, it's the hive mind of the industry. Um, if, if you've... It's, in fact, it's always nice to come across a problem which hasn't raised itself on Stack Overflow because there's always a chance that you've, met on, uh, you've stumbled across something absolutely unique. Um, very rarely happens these days because I think Stack Overflow has become, the, the, as I say, the hive mind of the industry. Um, the, the other, I think the other thing to suggest is really just, just, just keep up to date with what's going on in the wider world. We, there's this cliche phrase that with great power comes great responsibility um we as software engineers we have changed the world you know we 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 built the internet we constructed things like amazon skype which which have really changed the way that we we live our lives today but at the same time we're also the people who've enabled things like uh the whole edward snowden nsa uh scandal for want of a better world you know we've we've allowed that to happen as well so i think there's a responsibility on us not just to focus on purely tech resources but also keep yourself plugged into keep yourself plugged into the news just keep an eye on what's going on and just have a view of the bigger picture i think that's that's also just as important blogs what about blogs are you yes now that's something my Newsreader is is pretty much stacked up with um, with with stuff that I really should have really should have got round to reading. I try to have a period in the day which I can carve out to just spend you know sort of ten fifteen minutes just flicking through what's going on in the world, either from a news perspective or a technology perspective. And I still haven't forgiven Google for killing Reader. Uh, yeah, they killed all the other um, RSS feeds, and then they killed Reader, which is uh, it didn't it couldn't have cost them too much to keep it going. It seems a pretty crazy decision. It does. It does. I I'm really not sure I understand that one. Um, I also I, I was a great fan of Google Wave as well. I thought that was a wonderful project that they product that they killed. Um, who knows? I, I guess ultimately it's a distraction from their their core business, which is making lots and lots of money out of out of Google Ads. 
Um, but yes, that was that was one product that I, I really do I really do regret the parting of. And just before we bring this to an end, I just wanted to ask you about what you're really excited about right now. What- well, I've got an interesting product to work on. I'm surrounded by a great bunch of people. I'm in an interesting place to do it. So that's that's obviously a, a motivation. Um, the thing that really excites me at the moment, I think we've done everything that we can with a screen and a keyboard. I don't think desktop is is really really where it's at these days. And I think the same might also be true of the, the mobile devices as we know them. I think maybe they're coming to, to the point where we're, we're beginning to, to get to an end with what we can do with them. The thing that really fascinates me is where we go with... The, the next generation of wearables. So everybody's had a great time making fun of Google Glass. And yeah, it is ridiculous. And it, it's also, it, it tends to attract people perhaps who, who could use some uh, some brushing up on the, the whole interpersonal and, and how to be a nice person and the rest of society. Do, do you have a pair? Uh, no, no, thank God I don't. Um, but <laughs> I, I've, I've, no, I, I've steered clear of that. I think it's uh, the whole glass holes thing. I think, you know, there's maybe, there's maybe something in that. It's, um, yeah. Um, but then I, I, my first reaction when I saw Google Glass was, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, this, this, this is crazy. Where's, that, that, where's this going to go? But then I suddenly thought back to the, the first generation of mobile phones. And if you remember back in the day, they, they, were the size of a, they, they were the size of a laptop bag. They weighed about three tons. They, they had a battery life of 20 minutes. Um, some of them even came in two parts. You know, you, you have a, a handset with a, with a cord that attached to the main thing. And you, you sort of carry this brick around and, and, and use the phone in two, two, two pieces. Um, I'm sure there were lots of people who looked at that technology and scoffed at it because they were looking at the technology as it actually was at that time and not thinking about where it could go in the future. So if you take Google Glass and you apply Moore's Law to it, and if you take Google Glass and you apply the same kind of patterns of, of product development that have happened with things like, like mobile phones, and ask yourself, what are we going to end up with in the future as a result of that? Suddenly the world becomes a lot more exciting place. And who knows where it's going to go? And then you add in wearables and you know, being able to, to, to put CPUs and, and computing power into fabric and embedding uh, processes into, into, into our surroundings. Um, on the one hand, it could turn into you know, this horrible dystopian minority report style um, society. On the other hand, it could be completely transformed. So the fact that I'm working in an industry which is part of that, it, that is what gets me out of bed and into work at in the morning. And I interviewed someone recently that was talking about the Pebble Watch and, and just how fantastic it is to have this device where you, you really don't need to look at your phone as, as often during the day. Uh, and I think we probably need to experience these and wear these things before you know forming an opinion about whether they're going to be the future or not but i agree with you tim i do think wearables is very much the the future and you know google are talking about this um, contact lens that can analyze your tear ducts mm-hmm. and um, provide you some feedback on the, you know your health and stuff so it's going to be really interesting times as we draw it to a close, I, d- I did want to touch on uh, your apps that you've, you've worked on in the past. And, and Pebble was a result of the, one of the biggest Kickstarter projects uh, so far. And I believe that you've you worked on an app 
that was a kind of Kickstarter for the music business. Oh yes, yes. Pledge Music is um, Pledge Music is very much the the, the Kickstarter of the the music industry. Um, it's it's a fascinating idea. It's the idea that um, you know, as a as a small independent band, um, at some point you're going to need resources to either go into the recording studio or put together a video or, or, or whatever it's whatever it is. Um, what Pledge Music enables you to do is to, to reach out to your fan base. Not just in a one-way thing, not just in the sense of you know, please give us some money so we can go into the studio and record new, uh, re- record more more tracks, but it's also a great platform for building a community around uh, around particular bands. And if you think about it, you know, bands um, are the ultimate community-building organisations. You just have to look at the the, the tribes of believers to, uh, to, to to see the power of see the power of that and where that one goes so pledge music is a great um, great service to to do exactly that for for um musicians that would otherwise not be able to uh, to, to to get their to get their art out there and if you're looking for if, you know if you're looking for new music if you're looking to to ex- ex- get it, get some exposure to the the next big thing then you could do a lot worse than have a look around pledge music and see what's going on there well t- tim uh, uh- Thoroughly enjoyed this chat. We've um, covered a lot of ground. Is there anything you feel that we've missed on that would be, you know, valuable to share? Have you got a, like a parting piece of guidance for the listeners? Okay, this is this is going to sound like a terrible, terrible cliche, um, like like the worst kind of self help book that you find in airport bookstalls. Um, but the thing, the thing you've got to bear in mind is that the technology is all very well, but ultimately it gets used by people. You know, ultimately, uh, what we do, we, we spend our lives at the screen and the keyboard, but ultimately what we're doing is we're creating things that are going to be used by people. And in order to do that, we're working with people. Um, the one piece of advice that I was given by um, a, a boss that I really respected, um, someone who, who was a great guy and could, could motivate his team to do great things, um, someone that I thoroughly enjoyed working for, he gave me a piece of advice which has stuck with me for a long time, and it's, it's, it's really quite simple. You can ask people to do things that you can't do. That's perfectly okay. Sometimes there are things that you can't do and you have to get someone else to do it for you. The one thing you should never, ever do is ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And as I say, sounds like an awful piece of um, airport bookstore cliche, but I think bear that one in mind and you, you possibly can't go wrong in your career. Tim, how can we reach out to you? How can the listeners reach out to you? And if they've been inspired by some of the things that you've, you've talked about, it, what's the best way to connect? Um, well, I'm reasonably Googleable because I've got a fairly unusual name. Um, I'm Tim D on Twitter and just about everywhere else. I've got a blog at adoptioncurve.net and you can get to me through there or basically just bang my name into, into Google and uh, up I come. Tim, I'm going to put those in the show notes as well so anyone can go there and, and, and find the resources that you've mentioned during our chat and also the way to connect. But, you know, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable uh, chat. I've, we've covered, as I said, a lot of ground and it's just been so interesting. I could have gone on for at least two or three hours and, uh, but I uh, would love to have you back at some point and we can talk some more loads loads of stuff to cover i feel like we need to get a rant or two out of you we were touching on it but (laughs) perhaps we can do that in another show but in the meantime just thank you very much for imparting your wisdom and joining us on this it's been really really great my pleasure thoroughly enjoyed it thank you paul 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy podcast goes out every Sunday and Thursdays.